Stanford University. Thank you, David. Uh, I retired 13 years ago without the benefit of the information that's now available on the website, but still continue working partly with Artie and many others in maintaining an office, so it's been an exciting 13 years, and I hope it goes on for at least 13 more. Anyway, I think in the um, message that you got describing Art, um, a lot of his background is given there, but in fact not everything is given there. Particularly his international involvements were fairly light. I expect he'll talk more about them in his talk. Maybe not, okay. Uh, although Artie and I overlapped at Harvard University for several years in the 1960s, we first really met when I came to Stanford in 1973. Uh, to work with Artie, Seb Doniak, Bill Spicer, Ingolf Lindau, Piero Pianetta in starting what's called, what was called at the time the Stanford Synchrotron Radiation Project. Uh, in 1978, Artie took over as director of this laboratory and led its development for the next 19 years. During all of this time, we worked together, Artie as director and me as deputy director. The laboratory started life as a small parasitic secondary program using x-rays that spun off during colliding beam operation of the spear storage ring at Slack. It was a very frustrating and difficult experience for those brave scientists who came to use these x-rays while the schedule and operations parameters were completely controlled by the high energy physicists who were busy winning Nobel Prizes for discovering new particles. Under Artie's leadership, however, SSRL developed into a major Department of Energy user facility, serving thousands of outside users each year, as well as Stanford faculty, postdocs, and graduate students. The science done at SSRL in the late 70s and early 80s, under, uh, when Art was director, resulted in the construction of other labs by the US Department of Energy in the US and around the world. Uh, when the labs in the US began fighting with each other to compete for DOE funding, Artie got them together to convince Congress to support a general Department of Energy facilities initiative based on the immense scientific output and user needs. Artie's brilliant idea resulted in increased support for all the labs, just an example of his insight and way to deal with problems, cooperate rather than fighting. Artie had the vision of what SSRL could become and put in place major developments, such as the complete replacement of the original colliding beam facility with a new optimized third generation X-ray source. Even more important, in the early 1990s, Artie foresaw the scientific importance of an X-ray laser that could be developed using the SLAC LINAC. With his encouragement, I worked with Claudio Pellegrini and others to flesh out this idea. When DOE seemed not to be interested, they asked Artie, don't bother us. Don't spend your time developing things that we don't plan to fund. Artie ignored that. In fact, he told them, someday you will thank me for pursuing this in spite of your lack of interest. That day has come. The DOE has provided almost half a billion dollars to construct the world's first X-ray free electron laser at SLAC. It's now in operation, revolutionizing X-ray science producing extraordinarily intense bursts of x-rays in pulses that last only one millionth of one billionth of one second, a time scale appropriate to reveal for the first time the dynamics of chemical reactions and biological processes. The success of this x-ray laser is 
as I said, revolutionizing X-ray science and has transformed SLAC from a high-energy physics lab to a premier photon science lab, revitalizing SLAC and defining its path for the next decade or more. Stanford can be very proud of Artie for his immense contributions to Stanford, the nation, and international science. Artie. Am I on now? Yes, I can hear. Um, let me begin by saying that, like most of you, I never dreamed that as a child or a teenager that I would be doing the things that I've done here at Stanford. It was beyond anything that I thought of in my youth. And yet, when I look back, uh, most of my life has been determined by the characteristics, the values, and the skills of my youth. Uh, all the tensions in my life between science and the public me were evident in my teens already. It took me a long time to find my role in science and academia, and it keeps changing. And I've been extremely fortunate that the two things that I really planned for and worked hard for didn't work out. Uh, I was born and raised in the Bronx in New York. For 10 years, I was an only child until my brother Bruce was born. My father was probably the biggest influence on me in that period. My father taught electricity and electronics in Harlem in a vocational school. He loved electronics, mechanics, woodworking, and was superb at all of them, and taught me them at a very early age. He loved helping to advance his students. He would pick some of them up in the morning as he drove to work. He worked after school with them on hi-fi systems and other electronics. He was very mindful of the obstacles that those African-American students faced. And he stayed in contact with some of him, them well into his retirement years. Some of my most vivid memories are dinner table conversations about the problems that his students faced. My mother, my mother was overly protective. Uh, that made independence to me extremely important. Uh, on the other hand, some of my fondest memories are of my mother playing the piano and me either sitting with my back up against the piano, feeling the vibrations as well as hearing them, or alternatively singing. I loved to sing and sang for a long time. As I said, my brother Bruce was born when I was 10. Um, there was no rivalry between us. He gave me the independence that I wanted because he became the focus of my mother's attention. <laughs> Much to his regret, <laughs> we are still very close and he is a psychiatrist in the area. When I look back on my family life besides the tensions between me and my mother, 
I realized that in the family, there was no cynicism at all. Uh, there was a belief in doing something for the society, a love of learning, and a need to help those who were less fortunate, although we weren't very well off ourselves. As a child, I displayed the characteristics that I think are still true, and that is, I was always busy and internally motivated. Uh, I had a period where I went to the library every week, took out seven books, read one a day, and returned them the following week. On the other hand, I love sports. I played handball in the schoolyard, football, loved football, bicycled, uh, ping pong, and I really was a sports addict. I loved working in this little apartment. I had a, an electric source, so my room was usually covered with sawdust. I collected stamps, and I loved science, math, and in particular, what many people hate, those word problems in mathematics. I just loved doing them. Otherwise, I was not a particularly attentive student. Um, I had wanderlust, a characteristic I still have. In those days, you could get on the subway from the Bronx and go all over New York for a nickel or a dime. And I did that Saturday after Saturday until I acquired a good bicycle and could bicycle up into Westchester and into Manhattan uh, on a Saturday. As a child, I pored over Halliburton's Book of Marvels that spoke of the various wonders around the world and dreamed of seeing them. And fortunately, I've been able to see a lot of them. And now, of course, it's airplanes that lure me uh, month after month someplace. In 14, at age 14, in 1949, I joined a Zionist movement, and it had an enormous impact on me. Israel had just been formed, or had gained independence. I uh, idealized the kibbutz life with cooperation, sharing. Uh, I thought of bringing peace and justice to the Middle East. That hasn't quite worked out. The movement was highly intellectual and with very high standards. Um, it was routine to read and discuss Zionist and utopian philosophy. Uh, our evenings were filled with both classical and folk music, folk dancing, poetry, and the like. We had a farm in Upper New York State uh, near Poughkeepsie. I picked tomatoes the first day I was there, but then in the evening there was a broken toilet. I fixed that. Something else was broken. I fixed that, and I never picked tomatoes again. I was Mr. Fix-It for the movement, largely because of my father's training. At 15, in the movement, I met my first great love, uh, Giselle, or Gigi as she was called. And for me, it was a transformative relationship. We just loved to do things together. Uh, she was highly intellectual. She was a French Jewess who had escaped from Paris uh, before the Second World War. 
She was a feminist. All of this at 15 made me read uh, Virginia Woolf's A Room of One's Own, uh, got me familiar with Edith Piaf's music. We were very close, and we spent an enormous amount of time together. At 16, by the time I was 16, I was a leader of the movement, and I was editing its literary magazine. And again, one of those conflicts between me, Mr. Fixit, and me also editor of the literary magazine. In those days, I was constantly either writing myself or revising other people's manuscripts. At 16 also, I entered college, the Polytechnic Institute of Brooklyn. It allowed me to continue leading uh, Zionist groups, youth groups. Uh, I was planning to be the engineer on the kibbutz. That was the extension of being Mr. Fix-It on the farm. But in my freshman year, I took both physics and calculus. And I saw the power of calculus for understanding physical phenomena. So I decided, well, you only go to college once. I'm going to have fun, and I'll major in physics. I'll take enough engineering on the side so I can be the engineer on the kibbutz. Um, and the other thing that I did after my freshman year is I piled up on English courses. you typically taking 20, 20, 21 or 22 units of credit so I could get in uh, at least one literature course. Uh, I spent a lot of time with uh, Gigi, uh, and we did homework a lot of our life. At the beginning of my sophomore year, Gigi and I broke up. Her family, I think, basically broke us up and sent her off to France uh, to study in Paris. Um, I was quite disheartened. On top of that, somewhat later, and I don't remember exactly when, I realized I could never live on a kibbutz. An experience in the movement made me realize that I was prepared to be a minority of one if I believed in something. And that whereas that is easy in a big city like New York, on a kibbutz, that was not going to work. Uh, most of my life in that period had been built around the movement and around uh, Gigi. And in a short period, I lost both. I was uh, a lost soul, sympathized. Remember the character Larry in The Iceman Cometh? Uh, that was, in a way, how I viewed life in the period. I stayed in the movement because I still had my leadership responsibilities, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do next in life. During the next year, I spotted this slender, long-haired young woman who had come down to the movement uh, with friends of hers. She never became a member of the movement. I saw her. I was attracted to her, but never spoke to her. And then, uh, one night, um, I was at the ballet, actually with, with my best friend, who ultimately married Gigi. And uh, Roz was there with her best friend, with whom she's still friendly, and I still friendly with Michael. Uh, I finally walked up to her, started speaking to her, and we started dating seriously. I was uh, in my junior year. She was still in high school. Um, 
it was clear that she was extremely smart and much more studious than I was. Uh, we spent a lot of time together studying, and all of a sudden, my grades went up like man. She was also very much a part of the New York folk music scene, and that had a big effect on me. Uh, spending time with her, I decided I want to learn to play the guitar. And she suggested that I study with a man named uh, Ephraim Segerman, who was a graduate student in the X-ray lab at Brooklyn Poly. So I started taking guitar lessons in the lab, and I never became very good at the guitar, but I could really belt out a folk song. So the graduate students uh, wanted me in the lab, and I hung around the lab. And finally, F said one day, you know, you're a physics major. You're coming here to the x-ray lab. Why don't you learn something about x-rays? And he handed me a book to read, and I struggled my way through it, uh, trying to learn about x-rays. In my senior year, I moved to Greenwich Village to one of these little cold water flats, got a job on Canal Street in a war surplus shop that sold electronics and optics, and uh, took a course in x-ray diffraction. I was hanging around the lab when about two months into the semester, uh, one of the professors in the lab said, uh, my graduate student has gone back to Turkey. I need someone to work on this uh, contract. Will you come and work with me? So I gave up my job uh, on Canal Street, and I started doing research in the x-ray lab. And all of a sudden, over a period of a month or two, I was a changed person. From a person who uh, was casual about courses, who after all had planned on going to Israel, so it didn't matter whether I got an A, a B, or a C, uh, I was just captivated by a situation where the answer wasn't known. I would work through the night doing experiments, trying to uh, interpret data. I was just completely sucked in. I still didn't know what I wanted to do for a profession, but the research attracted me a great deal. So when I graduated from Poly, I just stayed on in the x-ray lab and went for a master's degree, figuring uh, something will turn up. In my first year in graduate school, I took a course in advanced x-ray diffraction from a famous German theoretician who had left uh, Europe uh, when Hitler came into power he was the father-in-law of the Nobel laureate Hans Bethe and a great theoretician in his own right. One night, he discussed a problem on symmetry and crystals that he was sure was soluble, but he didn't know how to solve. Um, I was excited by the problem, and I remember I slept that night uh, not in my Greenwich Village apartment, but in uh, Raz's family's apartment. And Raz and I sat up that night, and I decided I was going to work on that problem too. So uh, I would spend my days and early evenings doing experiments in the lab as an experimentalist, then go back to my Greenwich Village apartment and work on the symmetry problem till th two or three in the morning. And then on top of that, go and uh, see Roz three or four nights a week. It was hectic, but fun. 
as I started my second year of graduate school, it was pretty clear that I was going to solve that symmetry problem, and in fact, a much bigger problem that could be reduced to that problem. The experiments were going well. The conclusion was in sight as well. I walked into Avold's office about three weeks into the first semester of my second year, and he said, you have to leave. You have to go to Harvard, Cornell, or MIT. And I said, OK. And so uh, Roz and I decided to get married. She was still in college. Uh, and we applied to those schools, do we, as we were told. The only school that would accept her for her senior year was MIT. So she went there, and I decided, since I had gone to an engineering school, I wanted to go to a real university, and I went off to uh, Harvard. That summer, though, I wanted to earn some money. So uh, the National Bureau of Standards offered me a job. And at that time, they were working on theories of the structure of glass. And they needed someone to determine atomic arrangements. Uh, no one there had any experience with glassy materials, at least determining the structure with x-rays. Neither did I. But um, they asked me to try to do it. So I set out on that. And now I think I'll give you a partially technical talk. Um, crystals are a lot easier than amorphous materials to study. We visualize them as, uh, let me find the point, here it is. We just visualize them as repeating periodically in space in three dimensions. That is, there's a unit cell and one identical to it here and here and here and here and here. And that makes determining atomic arrangements very simple because all you have to do is figure out what's in one of these unit cells, which may contain five atoms or 10,000 atoms in a protein. But at least uh, you just figure out what's in one unit cell, and you've got the idealized structure at least. Uh, here I show uh, a one unit cell for diamond. This is also the crystal structure of germanium and silicon. And see, it's very simple. There are about eight atoms in this unit cell. Each carbon atom is surrounded by four other carbon atoms. And this just repeats in space, and you get a diamond. Or you get a germanium or silicon crystal. With x-rays, you study these things. Uh, and in a typical experiment, you have, say, uh, a powder that you've ground up of the material. X-rays come in, hit the sample, and bounce off. You measure uh, the intensity as a function of this angle, and you get something that looks like this, a so-called powder diffraction pattern. Um, from the positions of these lines, you can get the shape of that unit cell and how it repeats in space. From the intensities of these lines, you figure out how the atoms are arranged. And that is basically x-ray crystallography in a three-minute lecture. Um, there is another phenomenon that I should talk about, because it will become important later on. 
and visualize uh, a block of, uh, oh, I should mention um, that powdered diffraction is very convenient and used enormously uh, in industry and in science because each compound has its own pattern. So if you have a sample, you shine x-rays on it, you put it in a system that's made for that, and you can tell what compound is in your material. Uh, sometimes you have more than one material, and, and think about a block of sodium. If you add a little bit of chlorine into it, it will dissolve into the sodium. If you put a lot of chlorine into the sodium, it forms salt. So you have coexisting sodium and sodium chloride as salt, and that diffraction pattern would be a superposition of the patterns of sodium and sodium chloride salt. Sometimes it's different. That is, I said silicon and germanium both have the same structure. They have roughly the same interatomic distance. So you can add silicon to germanium and just get a single crystal structure all the way across the composition diagram. We call that solid solubility. So those are the two modes when you mix materials together, and they're easy to identify when they're crystalline. The diffraction pattern of an amorphous material is quite different. It's very broad. None of those peaks, those sharp peaks that you saw. We have two ways that classically we've looked at this sort of diffraction pattern. One is to say that a glass is an array of extremely small crystals, so small that you don't get enough interference to form those very sharp peaks. Instead, it broadens out into this very broad mess that you see here. The other model is quite different. It's known as the random network model. Notice there's no periodicity in this. This is an arrangement of boron oxide with boron atoms, each surrounded by three oxygens, and each oxygen by two borons, as it is in the crystal. But there are patterns here that prevent crystallization, prevent periodicity, and this is known as the random network model. Uh, I mentioned that alloying in the crystals because most glasses of interest are not simple compounds. They are alloys. For instance, most glasses that you see up there, window glasses, are mixtures of silicon dioxide with things like sodium oxide for potassium oxide or other sorts of things. That is, uh, and normal x-ray diffraction can't tell you whether you have a single phase or multiple phases. And what's more, it's often hard or impossible to determine the structural role of those additives. So that was what the Bureau of Standards set me on as a graduate student on my way from Poly to Harvard. And I set up a program there to study it, um, had some success with the material that I studied, and uh, a program that lasted for about 20 years in spite of the difficulties of interpreting the results. Um, at the time, I just thought of it as something to do between uh, poly and graduate school, but it was to have an enormous effect on my life. When I went to Harvard, 
the big thing in theoretical physics of solids were crystals. Um, we had developed the ability to calculate the electronic states in crystals. We had determined the ability to calculate the vibrational states in crystals. It was a golden era in which we were developing theoretical insight into many of the physical properties of crystals, although not all. Uh, superconductivity at the point, for the most part, eluded us. So that was what I was brought up to study, and that's what I studied at Harvard. And yet, because of the summers at uh, the Bureau of Standards, I constantly asked, how would you have to modify the theory if you were dealing with glasses? And to be honest, I didn't see how to do it. Uh, I had a theoretical physics topic that uh, was my thesis, but at the same time, I kept coming back to these glasses and these amorphous materials and disordered materials, and I published four or five papers uh, on them uh, as an aside for the fun of it uh, while I was uh, working on my thesis. I should mention that in 1959, two years after uh, uh, we arrived in Cambridge, Roz gave up graduate school after a year in Brandeis studying biochemistry. And I remember her distinctly saying, I do not want to spend my life as some man's research associate. And you will see the impact of that on me later on. In December of 1960, our first son, Eric, was born. My, my thesis was on a relativistic effect in the alkali metals. And uh, uh, about my, by the end of my fourth year, I had finished my calculations, and I was dead on in the effect in lithium, sodium, and potassium, but I got the wrong sign even of the effect in rubidium and cesium. I spent the fifth year of my graduate studies trying to figure out what I had done wrong. I went through every approximation that I made a number of approximations that were standard in the field, fell by the wayside, but I still got the wrong sign for rubidium and cesium. Uh, I gave up. I had published all these papers, so we stapled them into my thesis. Uh, and uh, we published, my thesis advisor and I, this 17-page paper in the Physical Review in which we went through all of this, and the paper ends with a shrug of the shoulders. We just couldn't figure out what was wrong with the calculation. At my thesis exam, Nico Bloombergen, who was later to, uh, to win the Nobel Prize, said, Artie, I think you're, you're, your calculation's right and the experiments are wrong. He said, you know, you, you get oxygen into rubidium and cesium, and it's going to mess up the experiments, and you're probably right. Nico then set two of his graduate students, former graduate students, one at Bell Labs, one at La Jolla, to do the experiments on superpurified uh, rubidium and cesium, and I was dead on for them as well. The fact that I was prepared to publish such a long paper with the wrong results, or the apparently wrong results, did my career a lot of good. On top of that, the symmetry work 
came to fruition. Avold and I uh, published uh, a paper on it. Uh, we got a couple of invited papers, uh, one at the American Physical Society. And as I was finishing up my thesis, uh, my advisor, who was dean of the school, said, uh, we want you to be an assistant professor, but we want you to go away for a year. We have arranged for you to go for a year to Harwell, the Atomic Energy Research Establishment, and then come back as an assistant professor. And on the spot, I said yes, without consulting Roz, without knowing what the salary would be, with not knowing anything about the position at all, and off we went to England after uh, a fascinating summer in Washington again. Uh, my colleagues down there, with whom I was still linked, had found a very weird thing, and that is if you uh, uh, heated silver iodide, it would expand as it, it, it normally would. It, well, at first it would contract, and then it would expand as you continued to heat it, and then it would contract again. Negative thermal expansion, and they wondered if I could explain that. Well, I spent the summer doing that, and then we went off to England, to Harwell. It was a bitter cold, 1962-63. Uh, we had a young child, um, a year and a half at the time. Our pipes were freezing, so we had no water for long periods. There was ice on the inside of the windows for uh, months at a time. There was no central heat, and we loved it. <laughs> The countryside was beautiful and all new to us. My colleagues at Harvard were just magnificent. And there was absolutely great theater in Oxford and in London. And we had a ball. I worked again on negative thermal expansion. Something weird happened in germanium. Wrote a paper that I entitled a black magic calculation of the thermal expansion of germanium, but the English would not let it out of the lab with that title. And uh, I started something completely new for me, working on order-disorder phenomena. And I'll just give you a brief discussion of that. If you have uh, brass, copper, zinc, 50-50 uh, mixture, then at low temperatures, room temperature, you have a crystal structure where you, that you can describe it as coppers at the corners of the unit cell and a zinc in the center. As you heat it, though, it has, goes through a gradual trans, transformation so that ultimately it ends up with an equal probability of finding a copper or a zinc on each lattice site. And those transformations occupied us as theoreticians uh, for many years and still do. Um, they're uh, fascinating. So I started work on that as well. I went back to uh, Harvard uh, and found a new problem that was counterintuitive. Uh, in semiconductors, there is a so-called energy gap between the states that are involved in bonding, the electronic states, and the first excited state where the electrons can move uh, readily around the crystal that accounts for conductivity. In most semiconductors, in virtually all, uh, that gap decreases with increasing temperature. In lead, telluride, selenide, and sulfide, uh, 
it increases with temperature. So having had fun with uh, things that it contract when you heat them, I thought I'd go after that one too. Um, and, uh, and ultimately, uh, a student of mine and I solved it. Um, I got, I, you know, we were working on these disordered systems, and I started to ask what would the vibrational spectrum of these disordered systems be, and uh, worked on that as well. So that was the sort of things I was doing uh, in the mode of the time, which focused on the physical properties of crystalline systems. In 1964, um, about a year after we returned to Harvard, our daughter Amy was born early in 1965. She was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis, and, and Rosalind and I went through a, a, a painful period trying to decide whether we could stay at Harvard, stay in academia. Uh, could we afford it financially? Could we afford the time that it took to uh, care for a child with that disease? We decided to try and make it work, and I'm certainly glad that we did. As time went on, we realized that Amy was brilliant. And we realized as well that uh, she would never have a normal family life. So we had a brilliant young girl uh, who was not going to have uh, a normal family life. Motherhood at the time typically uh, led to the death of mothers with cystic fibrosis. So both of us steered her towards a profession. And in the years that followed, we watched all the outside influences that tended to discourage uh, a young woman from going into a profession, although Amy never got discouraged, fortunately. So I had watched Roz give up graduate school, and I had thought with Roz a great deal about Amy's future, and that influenced me ultimately a fair bit. When I got back to Harvard, I forgot to mention there was a very great materials uh, scientist there. He had come while I was in England. David Turnbull, and it was, uh, and he had a strong interest in glassy materials. And what's more, it was beginning to be a very exciting period, because we had developed techniques—not we, but people had—of uh, very rapidly cooling liquids, so that you could form glasses out of things that had never been glassy before. Uh, a whole array of semiconductors, of uh, metals. And it opened up a whole new era. Turnbull was asking questions like, why do glasses form when crystals are really the stable state? What are the structures of glassy metals? I liked him very much. Our groups met together twice a day for coffee. He and I had lunch almost every day. And he was beginning to have an enormous influence on me. He needed to study the structure of glasses. He had no experience in it. I had that National Bureau of Standards experience, so I set up an x-ray lab for him. And, uh, and we started to do structures together, mostly his students, and they did beautiful things. With one of his students, um, 
we attacked a problem that had been around. A man named Warren, a brilliant X-ray crystallographer, had shown through a series of experiments of scattering of X-rays at very small angles that that microcrystalline model that I showed you, talked about for glasses, couldn't be valid. That the intensities of small angle scattering were just, were just too small for it to be valid. That is, glasses couldn't be arrays of very small crystals. What uh, Bagley, Dave's student, and I showed was that all those experiments were invalid, and that, in fact, the microcrystalline model was on an equal footing with the, with the random network model. It was sort of fun because we first announced this in Russia at an international meeting, and we sent in an abstract that was very um, non-informative. And when I got up to give the talk, the originator of the microcrystalline model, who was the head of an institute in Leningrad then, St. Petersburg, uh, was in the room, had no idea what was coming. And I gave this talk, showed that his model was again on an equal footing with the random network model. And he got up after my talk and gave another talk on how important the work was. And at a fairly young age, I was all of a sudden the hero of an international meeting. It was really fun and exciting. But it left open the question, is the random network model or the microcrystalline model the most appropriate? With all the good time that I was having with Dave Turnbull, it was all an aside. My focus was on crystalline materials, and glass was a hobby. Um, in 1965, in the summer, I met a man named Dovshinsky at a Gordon conference, a man with a high school degree only who was there, and he invited to me to visit his company. He wanted to show me a device that he was very excited by, and he needed help in understanding. And it's conceptually very simple. That is, uh, you have a thin film of material, starts out amorphous, you have metallic contacts, uh, and then you have wires through which you can pass an electric current. And what he was claiming, and what he showed was, that if he uh, passed one type of current through these contacts, the material would become a conductor, although it started out as an insulator, and if he then passed another type of pulse through it, he could reverse it to an insulator. And he could do this repeatedly, back and forth. In other words, it was a potential memory device. He thought that it was a transformation from crystalline to amorphous. The amorphous was the low conductivity material. The crystalline was the high conductivity material. But he couldn't prove it. And all of this, by the way, was happening in milliseconds, very quickly for that period. I was fascinated. Uh, I went back to Harvard, described it to Dave Turnbull, and Dave said, Artie, you've got to work on that. I tried to do x-ray scattering on the material, but there was just too little material to get anywhere with it at all. Um, and uh, I didn't see how to proceed. 
Nevertheless, I was getting very interested and also interested in the theory of the phenomenon. Uh, and uh, I started then to switch my interest seriously towards glassy materials rather than uh, uh, casually. Um, and uh, I have to mention that at the time, a senior faculty member at Harvard said, if you start to work on those glassy materials, you're not going to get tenure at Harvard. Um, in 1965, um, Tony Sigmund was in, on sabbatical at Harvard. I was due uh, sabbatical. Uh, Roz and I had planned to go back to Harwell, but we realized we couldn't go back with Amy. And Tony urged me to come here. He said that they were doing experiments here related to uh, these studies of vibrational properties of disordered crystals uh, that I had been calculating. Uh, and I spent the first six months, Roz and I uh, here at, at uh, Stanford, I working with Gerald Pearson in EE on uh, his materials. It was an absolutely great time, um, particularly for Amy. Whereas in Massachusetts in the winter, she was housebound most of the time. We lived in Escondido Village, you know, and she could just go out into the circle and play. The weather was beautiful, whereas we had left about six feet of snow in Massachusetts. We loved it. Bill Tiller was chairman of material science, and unlike that senior faculty member at Harvard, uh, he was very interested in these disordered materials that interested me and the glasses and had me speak in the material science department and, uh, and uh, indicated great interest. I went back to Harvard in uh, something like February or March of 67. I learned that I was not going to get tenure at Harvard. And, uh, Fortunately, Stanford and a number of other places uh, offered me a, a position, and I came back here. Um, in that spring, I realized that we would never understand those amorphous semiconductors until we understood their structure. So when I came back to Stanford, uh, I set one of my students, Forster Betts, on trying to understand the structures of these amorphous materials. We were very fortunate that Mr. Oshinsky would make samples for us, and then we were fortunate in another way, and that is at his company, they discovered a way of transforming large areas of the material from crystalline, well, from conducting to non-conducting and back and forth using a xenon flash lamp where they could control the shape of the light pulse, the intense light pulse that hit these materials. You may not recognize that, but that is the mechanism of the CDRWs. You know the CDs that you can read and write on repeatedly, and they are indeed all materials related to the original materials that Oshinsky studied. This allowed us, since we now had large areas, we could do x-ray diffraction on these materials. And uh, indeed, uh, the low resistance state was crystalline. The high resistance state was mostly amorphous. And you could switch them back and forth repeatedly at very high temperatures. 
1968 or 69, we published a paper on it, and it had a very big effect. We showed that for the first time uh, this was that sort of phase change that Ovshinsky had conjectured, and that is now the basis of phase change memories that you hear about uh, in the literature. We also studied the structures of a series of amorphous germanium-tellurium alloys and uh, showed that the structure of amorphous germanium-telluride was completely different from that of crystalline germanium-telluride, and that allowed you to understand why one was highly resistant and the other was conducting, but it also meant that the glass could not be microcrystalline. Um, so, how much time do I have left, David? Okay, so that was it. I switched to amorphous materials and worked and worked and worked in that field. Uh, where am I? Oops. Um, but ultimately hit a roadblock in that uh, we couldn't understand what impurities were doing in amorphous materials, and yet that was central. In 69, something completely different happened, and that I was, I was made chairman of the Undergraduate Admissions and Financial Aids Committee. And I didn't know what I was getting into, but in 69, 70, we said no, absolutely, to a major study, SES recommendation that uh, all judgment be taken out of undergraduate admissions. In 70-71, we said no to a set of black student union demands that we set up a separate uh, minority admissions committee. We said instead that we should go uh, aggressively for the best minority students. And that experience really impressed me because I was faced by two black students who were superb intellects. One's a faculty member at Harvard, another one at Boston University or Boston College, uh, arguing against elitism. And I had images of Adlai Stevenson at the UN uh, defending Cuba because these two clearly led their own life trying to be as good as they could be. Um, we said no, as I said. And then in 71, 72, after a, a babysitter suggested it, we got rid of the limit on the number of women that could be students at Stanford, getting it out of the founding grant. Mrs. Stanford had put it into the grant after uh, Mr. Stanford, Governor Stanford died. The next year, uh, Bill Miller uh, offered me the position of uh, faculty affirmative action officer. I had become a fellow of the university wanting to study something else. And uh, um, Bill showed me the executive orders, or, uh, orders that had come from the president of the time on affirmative action, said, why don't you take a look at these and tell us what to do? I took them home for the weekend and said, came back to Bill and said, one, it looks like it's aimed at minorities, but the initial impact is going to be enormous for women. Um, that while other institutions are trying to figure out what to do, we should go for the, uh, very aggressively for the best women and minority faculty we could attract to 
to this institution. Uh, if we do it, and if we collect those people at the institution, they'll inspire our students, and it will be well worth it. If we fail to do the best, we will regret it. So I did that. Um, in the same time, um, we started, uh, we, we, uh, I realized at a meeting in amorphous semiconductors that there was a way to study the structures of amorphous materials that was new. It was being developed by a graduate student at the University of Washington, but it needed a continuous X-ray spectrum. That is, you needed to vary the wavelength. He was trying to develop this technique, but he just didn't have the intensity to make it an effective tool. Fortunately, out at Slack, they were setting up a uh, spear storage ring. What, oh boy. <laughs> I'm going to take another five minutes and rush through this, David. Um, and whoops, I think I'll skip through all of this. Um, and um, uh, Duniak and Spicer had proposed to use this spear ring, which was a high energy physics for producing synchrotron radiation. It just naturally produces synchrotron radiation. Let me briefly tell you what it is. Electrons come in here at very high energies. They go straight for a while. They pass through a magnet. When the magnet bends their path so they can go around the circle, they give off extreme x-rays. Um, the spectrum is like this. What you can see is there are no sharp peaks in this spectrum. And what you can't see here is about the intensity there from the initial beam line is about 100,000 times as intense as an x-ray tube. Well, that allowed us to proceed with amorphous materials on a scale that we just couldn't do before. And many of the problems that I had wanted to solve uh, became soluble. I'll skip through this. We kept going. Uh, we found ways of bending the paths of the electrons. Herman proposed that we do this with a device called the Wiggler, and that gave us another factor of something like 100 intensity. So we were up to something like uh, 10 million times the intensity of an X-ray tube. Um, whoops, I'm getting ahead of myself. All I'll say is that for the next 20 years, Herman and I and a brilliant staff developed SSRL. It led the path for many such facilities around the world. It led to at least one and a half Nobel Prizes. Um, protein crystallography became possible on a scale that you couldn't do it. You could look at the environment of metalloproteins uh, as they went through their biological function. Uh, you could study semiconductors in a way that you never could before. It was uh, a wonderful 20 years. I stuck with it for 20 years because it constantly changed. Uh, at the end of 20 years, I decided I'd had enough. I wanted to go back to teaching, research, and skiing. Uh, but in the spring of 97, I got a call from... Uh, uh, the White House, after having organized that facilities initiative that Herman told you about and getting very comfortable with 
the Office of Science and Technology Policy, with OMB, and with Congress, trying to get them successfully, actually, to increase the budget of facilities by about $100 million. I went to the Office of Science and Technology Policy. I was offered the associate directorship. The Office of Science and Technology Policy is headed in most administrations by the President's Science Advisor. It has four divisions. I headed the, the, division, uh, the science division. And I'll just give you a sense of the things we dealt with in those three years. We managed to get the budgets up for things besides NIH. Uh, published a, a document on the science and technology workforce that basically said if we fail to integrate women and minorities into the science and technology workforce, this nation is going to be short of uh, engineers, of scientists, in a way uh, that will become critical. Uh, we worked on successfully on the government university partnership, which had been severely frayed as a consequence of the, the problems that Stanford had over indirect costs. We got a common definition of uh, research misconduct. Um, Harold Varmus and I uh, meeting in a bakery on Connecticut Avenue to find President Clinton's stem cell policies. Uh, I got a nuclear research initiative going, thinking that we had to, we couldn't allow ourselves to become second rate in nuclear engineering. Uh, I brokered the Yucca Mountain environmental standards. I tried unsuccessfully to get funding from uh, the government for Project Sesame, which is a synchrotron facility being constructed in Jordan, in which Israel and many Middle Eastern countries participate, and which Herman has done so much to uh, advocate. Uh, got HB1 quotas up for academia, and uh, it was, for me professionally, probably the most exciting um, year, three years of my professional life. I came back to Stanford, did a variety of things, retired a year and a half ago, and now spend my life doing two things. Um, one, uh, I work with the Wallenberg Foundation, uh, which supports mo a lot of science in Sweden to encourage Stanford-Sweden collaborations. And the other, I still work on the government-university relationship, uh, trying to improve that relationship. And I must say, motivated by two things very strongly, and that is the plight of the public research universities in the United States that face declining funding, and which I view as seriously in danger. You know, great as Stanford is, we depend critically on the health of the University of California, and it's in trouble. The other thing I work on is, is the enormous burden that faculty um, face with administrative matters. On average, American research faculty are spending 42% of their federally funded research time on administration instead of on research. As I look around this room and see so many friends, 
I am really fortunate that I failed in the two things that I really planned on doing professionally in my life. One, going to Israel and living on a kibbutz, and the other being a Harvard professor. I look back and I think, I am so fortunate uh, that I did not get tenure at Harvard because here at Stanford, I have friends who have enriched Raz's and my life so much from virtually every department of the university. And I never would have known you if we were all at Harvard. Thank you. Exhausted you. Yes. Amy, unfortunately, Amy had a fabulous life here in California. Um, she was a super student. Um, the last time, a good skier who won a bronze medal the last time she could ski race. Um, Graduated from uh, Gunn with 32 units of advanced credit in science and math. Um, after being in the hospital large portions of her junior and senior year, had a horse that she loved to ride and uh, bought it cheaply and trained it so that it uh, won ribbon after ribbon. We would uh, take her to these events. She would go into the ring uh, win a ribbon, come out, fall asleep on her horse. Five minutes before the next event, we would hand her a can of Coca-Cola. She'd get up and uh, win another ribbon. Uh, came to Stanford for uh, her freshman year. Two weeks into or three weeks into her freshman year, a large young woman approached her and said, we need a coxswain for women's crew, so our 75-pound, uh, uh, less than five-foot-tall uh, daughter was on a team. Uh, had one wonderful year here at Stanford, and then passed away um, just before she would have started her, her uh, sophomore year. In, the, in 1969, we adopted a young man, Adam, so we have two children. Yes? Why was it the topic that would get tenure at Harvard? What was the logic of that? The, the, the sense was I had been hired as a, a solid state theoretician who was known to be close to experimentalism. And, and uh, crystals were really the uh, mode of the day for good reason. I mean, they were the basis of the semiconductor industry, uh, the basis of superconductivity. 
Um, and, uh, and, and that faculty member thought that I was veering away um, from that. Interestingly enough, um, approximately three years after I left Harvard, uh, at least two or three of the faculty member who were members who had been working on crystals started working on amorphous materials too. But it just wasn't fashionable at the time. When I look back um, and think of how um, incomplete my picture of was of what I wanted to do, it was probably a good decision for Harvard. You know, I, I, I don't think I was mistreated at all. Um, I think I just hadn't found what I really wanted to do. I mean, I was working on crystals, and yet my curiosity was so often related to amorphous materials. And it was really when I came here that uh, things really gelled. And then with synchrotron radiation, it just took off like crazy. Yes? Yeah, that was, that was really um, exciting because there were no precedents, really, you know. Um, and and uh, as I said, I was convinced that we uh, had to get people who would inspire our students. That if we uh, dropped our standards significantly, we would look back 20 years later and there would be a group of, of people who were considered inferior to the bulk of Stanford's faculty. And that was just something we didn't want to do. That would be counterproductive. So we did a variety of things. First of all, uh, with the deans, Al Hasdorf, Al Art Coladarchi, we would look for places where um, an extra faculty member would really help. And we would go to that department and say, uh, look for a woman or a minority who's really going to add to your department or school, who will add a great deal. And don't worry too much about the details of a field, because if you find a really good person, they'll make a place. Uh, you know, he or she will make a place for himself. And, and that was offering a carrot to departments that really needed an extra faculty member. And times were sort of tight, but I had the provost, Bill Miller, and the president, Dick Lyman, behind me on it. Ray Bichetti was in charge of the budget, and Ray would always come through with money if we needed. So that was one thing that we did. We started to really tighten up on searches. Um, so, um, so that uh, we became certain that the departments uh, searched widely for outstanding faculty, that they looked for women and minority members who could be uh, faculty members, but we wanted the very best. And then again, we said, you know, if you do a search and you come up uh, with two people who are outstanding, and and one's a white male, and another one is a member of uh, an underrepresented group. Come see us. Maybe we'll go for both. You know, and that happened. 
And, but the onus was always on the faculty to find people who were uh, truly outstanding and who would add to the department. Um, we, that was the era where we started childcare centers. It was the area where, era where we introduced maternity leave and you know, extension of the tenure clock uh, when people wanted it. Um, we, we introduced a program uh, for faculty who wanted to change fields. Uh, I forgot what else we did. Um, those were the sorts of things that we did. Um, never the stick, always the carrot, and always um, the sense that we had to attract the very best. And, you know, um, I think we did the wisest thing. Um, in the middle of the program, uh, uh, now the National Organization on Women wrote up the Stanford program. HEW came to uh, monitor the program. And uh, when they were leaving, they said, you know, um, um, we don't know whether you're, you're obeying the law or not, but we don't care. <laughs> said, the program's so good. And then, you know, in 78, I went up to SSRL, and uh, the Department of Labor did an inspection. And after the closeout, they asked if, if um, they could see me. So I came down from Slack and uh, sat with them. And they said, you know, we've never been at an institution where the white males, the women, and uh, the minority faculty all have the same view of affirmative action. Um, so I think it was a good program. Oh, uh, you know, we did one more thing, and that is there were several women at the School of Medicine who were research associates and, and senior research associates. And, and uh, they felt that uh, they should be faculty. So we did a review of all the research associates and senior research associates at the time. And uh, I didn't do the review. The med school did the review. And we did indeed conclude that two of them, Rose Payne and Judy Poole, were in every way functioning like faculty. They were world famous. They had extensive research programs. They were teaching. And uh, we decided to uh, make them full professors. It was sort of interesting because in the period where we were planning to do it, there were some who said, Artie, you know, and Bill Miller, you're, you're uh, opening us up to lawsuits. And uh, Bill and Dick and our lawyer, Jim Siena, and I and the med school said, it's the right thing to do, and we're just going to do it. Um, those two women never sued us. We had been sued by a third woman. And uh, shortly after, uh, the announcement that Judy and Rose were going to be uh, made full professors, she dropped her lawsuit and uh, sent me a note saying, you know, I think you made the wrong decision in my case, but you followed a procedure that was valid and uh, 
I'm dropping my lawsuit. Um, a number of years later, she left the university, went east, and became very well known. Uh, we, we, uh, we should have made an effort to keep her, uh, but we lost her. Uh, but those were the sorts of things that we did. Thank you. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.